Before we get to today's show, just a quick reminder that you can get the most comprehensive digest of China-Africa news delivered daily to your email inbox. Try it out at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Africa Project Managing Editor Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, as some of you may know from our announcement on Twitter and also in our newsletter, this was a huge week for us. Uh, we just launched our brand new French site, Le Projet Afrique Chine. You can find that uh, the link in the show notes. This is for Francophone speakers. We also have a new podcast that's out called Afrique Chine, and you can find that everywhere you get your podcasts. And we have a new Twitter account, also Afrique Chine, and that's Afrique with a K, not the Q-U-E. Afrique Chine, all one word, over on Twitter. We want to give a big shout out to Jeronima, who is the editor of our new Francophone service, and he's doing an amazing job. We hope that you'll check it out, especially si vous parlez français. That would be fantastic. And it's a brand new service, so let us know what you think. You can email us directly, or you can hit us up on Twitter and all the social media channels. He's also got Facebook and LinkedIn that he's managing as well. And stay tuned to this space. Arabic is coming next month as well. So some big announcements there. Also, a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you for all that you're doing to support the show. We really just cannot express our gratitude enough. The show would not be possible now without you. And I also want to thank uh, our good friend Kenyatta, who uh, I had an amazing discussion with uh, this week as part of his membership tier. And also we're sending out swag. These mugs are going out all over the world. And everybody on Patreon, in our Patreon community, gets the weekly digest on Friday of the Top China Africa News of the Week. If you would like to join our Patreon community, just go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Your support is so appreciated and helps keep this show on the air. Okay, today we're going to be talking about China-Kenya relations. And boy, there has been just a lot going on. It's hard to tell if all of this coverage is because Kenya in some ways is unique in Africa and what I'm going to walk you through all the data, or it's because there's just a very vibrant media space in Kenya that is really making us aware of everything that's going on. Let me throw some data your way. Bear with me because it's a lot of numbers. The, the main story is that Kenya is in trouble and really big trouble. And let me just walk you through why. So all last week, there's been troubling signs on the currency markets. The shilling reached 114 to the dollar, and it's been staying at 114 to the dollar. So it didn't kind of hit that low and then bounce back. It's been at that low for more than a week. This is also combined with the fact that the Chinese currency is also is, is gaining strength against the dollar. So today, at the recording on, let's see, we're Wednesday today, it was 6.31. And it's heading towards 6.25 to the dollar. This is very important for a country like Kenya that depends so heavily on Chinese imported goods because the cost of those imports now with the strengthening yuan is going up. Let's also talk about debt, which is at $71 billion, which is about 8 trillion shillings. And there's moves in parliament now to push the debt ceiling up to 13 trillion shillings, which is about $115 billion. And boy, oh boy, that debt has just been steadily going up. Now, a lot of people talk about the Chinese role in Kenya's debt. It's often vastly overstated. The fact is that China's share of Kenya's total debt isn't that much. It's just about 6.92, around $7 billion out of $71 billion of total debt, which is, of course, around 10%. 
Now, let's remember that the Kenyans are also servicing their Chinese debts right now, so the amount of Chinese debt is going down while the amount of other debts that the Kenyans are borrowing is going up. So the share that the Chinese have of the total debt is actually decreasing. And while that's really tough on the balance sheet, it does mean that, the again, the conditions and the, the narrative around the Chinese role in Kenya's debt situation is changing very quickly. But another part of the problem is those debt servicing costs, and this is also very important. Whereas France and Japan and some other bilateral lenders have given Kenya a reprieve and said, okay, you don't have to pay back your debts right now. The China Exim Bank has said, nope, you are going to pay. And that is really causing some big problems. Now, it's important to note that the French and the Japanese have a very small share of Kenya's debt, and China's share is much larger, so there's not equivalency there. That being said, these debt servicing costs are really having an impact on Kenya's foreign exchange reserves, and this year's debt servicing bill, according to the National Treasury, will be $8.7 billion. That's about one trillion shillings. And a lot of that, again, is dollar-denominated debt, so they're draining the foreign exchange reserves to pay for that. Then there's the trade deficit, and this is super important. Last year, Kenya bought $3.9 billion worth of goods from China. But get this, they only sold back $131 million of goods in return. That is an enormous gap. It's the same situation we're seeing in other African countries. Uganda has this dynamic. Ghana has this dynamic. Senegal. So it's not just unique, but it is causing a big problem. And that brings us back full circle to the weak shilling, because the combination of the growing trade bill and debt servicing costs keeps the shilling under pressure. Because again, dollars are going out and not coming back in fast enough. And the weak shilling ultimately erodes people's buying power, which is also being hit by the surging oil and food prices that are pushing inflation higher. Okay, Kobus, are you still with me? That was a lot. Okay. I mean, there's a lot going on here, and China is at the center of so much of it. But it's hard for me to tell if this situation, again, is unique to Kenya, as I mentioned at the top of this discussion, or if it's happening elsewhere, but we're just not seeing it simply because the media sector isn't as vibrant as it is in Nairobi. What, what do you think? I think it's kind of both at the same time. On the, on the one hand, I think these are factors that are playing out in many African countries and many global South countries. Um, on the other hand, I think you know certain certain aspects of it in Kenya, particularly the debt aspect and, and how that's related to uh, to politics in Kenya around around contracts like the Standard Gauge Railway, puts a, a uniquely Kenyan kind of spin on some of these aspects. But as a whole, I think it sh- it shows that cer- that certain of these dynamics are prevalent around the world, and they're now be kind of turning into massive problems among others. You know, due to the the kind of disruption of the Ukraine crisis and its kind of knock on effects around the world, so you know, so so it kind of points to the need for for African countries to radically kind of redefine their their relationship to China, um, you know, which is currently kind of being defined by these trade imbalances and by debt. Well, let's get some perspective on the situation from someone who recently had a chance to speak with China's ambassador to Kenya, Zhou Pingjian. Eliud Kibi is a sub-editor and also an international and diplomatic affairs writer at The Star newspaper, one of Kenya's major leading national newspapers. His interview with Ambassador Joe recently appeared in the paper, and we are thrilled to have Eliud on the show for the first time, joining us from Nairobi. A very good afternoon, Eliud, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Eric. It's great to have you on the program, and let's just kind of dive into it. I mean, before we get into the topics that you discussed with Ambassador Joe. It'd be interesting to hear a bit of the backstory about how the interview came about. I mean, at the end of the day, interviewing an ambassador in many countries is is really not that big of a deal. It happens all of the time in journalism. But, but you know that the Chinese are different here. I mean, they generally are much more reluctant to speak with the non-Chinese press. How did it work with you? Did you guys approach the embassy for the interview or did they come to you? I didn't really know about it because it was an assignment by the editor and it came about because there has been a lot of activities that Chinese have been you know undertaking in Nairobi specifically or in Kenya and you know just outside the office there is the expressway 
in which you know it's one of the biggest projects that is currently running in the country so and uh, the chinese embassy itself has been reaching out to the press because there has been a lot of discussion which might paint the embassy of the china government in a negative way in terms of of debt and you know, an increasing debt appetite and you know in that case there has been a lot of what you'd call a negative uh, remarks against chinese uh, you know uh, giving kenya debt so and you know in kenya there's an election election period so i might not be sure of who really reached who but i think that they might have a lot of interest in trying to get their narratives out did they suggest particular things that they wanted to discuss in the interview and did you have to submit your questions to them before doing the interview um they did not they did not suggest areas of coverage but uh, they asked me the areas that i would focus uh, on in the interview so I just sent the areas in broad uh, you know uh, like I'll you know I'll cover the the COVID-19 I'll cover the debt issue I'll cover the trade so that in broadly you know in what they said so that the ambassador can prepare in advance Yeah and that's very normal and standard just to give the broad topics as a as a courtesy to to your guests so that's nothing really unusual so that's that's interesting to hear um you covered a really wide range of topics in the interview and it was neat to see the breadth of it did anything surprise you in what he said uh, something surprising i wouldn't say but you know it's you know he gives the chinese narratives and what comes out of the interview is that they've been victims of a narrative from you know what I, you know in my interruption interpretation would be the western western end and the, in that interview there is a point he says you know they are not the biggest lenders yeah in terms of bilateral you know in terms of debt but when you look at the numbers they are actually the biggest bilateral lenders so he is trying to you know defend them giving loans right and you know in time maybe to clean the negative image or coverage that they've been having so other than that i don't think there's uh, you know one unusual thing that he said that would say that i didn't anticipate not really in in, in addition to to simply kind of blaming you know misinformation like western led misinformation for for the the controversy of of the chinese deaths did he have anything to say about the specific controversies particularly around the standard gauge railway and these kind of allegations around the the kind of lack of transparency of of the contract and so on did he did he touch any of those issues specifically he touched a lot around uh, you know the loans and the, because for instance the, the the issue of the secrecy of the contracts emerged when there were claims that you know there are some prestatos that that could be seized and you know the president really denied in an interview in Mombasa i think 3 years ago and you know he had promised uh, that he would make that contract public that never happened and in explaining that the the ambassador says you know even the embassy itself is not aware of some of the details of those contracts because they are not government to government loans these are government sometimes governments to banks which are private entities so that is something that he said and you know i, I didn't realize that because for a long time i thought these would be government to government engagements but then for instance the exim bank is getting into a contract with uh, with the government of Kenya and in that sense the details of uh, of the contracts uh, are bound by the contract uh, maybe by the exim bank there are clauses that they don't want made public yeah he's in very treacherous territory right there i mean they want to have it both ways by saying it's not government to government but at the end of the day the china exim bank is a an official policy bank of the state of china so it is a government entity and it's interesting because the excuses that we've been hearing from the Kenyan side from various ministers have said well this is a state to state relationship so we cannot release the details of this contract because of national security that's what the transport cabinet secretary said so it's funny how all sides are making up all various kinds of excuses about the transparency question on the SGR debt meantime Kenyan residents and taxpayers like yourself still have no idea 
what this contract looks like. And I was really surprised when you asked him specifically about the secrecy in the China-Kenya contracts, and you mentioned the SGR, and he said, quote, there is no secrecy issue here. And that's just not believable because there is a secrecy issue. And the fact is that under Kenyan law, these contracts must be made public. Procurement contracts are to be public under the Kenyan constitution, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but we also have a, a, law, a law that is Access to Information Act. But now the, the gray area which I've not been able to really, because I had asked the legal officer to, to do a check on me, is whether that also applies if the government is engaging a private you know, institution in, 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 in case for these loans. So I've not been able to, to verify that at least for now. One of the very interesting parts of the interview for me was that you um, you asked him a question about about what's come to be known as the Guangzhou incident, which was this COVID-related, you know, discrimination against, against black residents of the, the Chinese city of Guangzhou um, early on in the COVID era when they were suddenly, like, kicked out of where they stayed and, like, refused business in, in, in businesses. So I wanted to ask you why you decided to ask him about that and what you thought of his response. Uh, this was a huge issue at the time and you know there was an uproar in Kenya and you know it went to the extent of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs issuing a statement in regards to what was happening uh, in China and you know in really you know if you, you really need to get uh, what is the opinion of the ambassador of the country in regards to this because there are people still in Kenya who felt discriminated against when they were in, 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 in China. You know, there are very many students in Kenya who, who, are, who are in China, in different parts of China. So I thought it was an important question to get from his perspective. And if you would uh, remember, Kobas is uh, Ambassador Zhu at the time was in Nigeria. And it was a very, you know, heated issue at the time. I remember there was a senior official who, who expressed his disgust in, in his, I think he was, he was summoned to his office. So it was important to get the reaction of the Chinese uh, ambassador in regards to that because uh, even now in what is happening in, um, in, in Ukraine, there is some kind of you know discrimination or actually discrimination so i think it was an important question that needed to be addressed as much as you know and still the covid situation is still with us so i thought it was an important question that needed to be addressed at this particular time you're right it was a very important question that needed to be addressed he said there might have been some misunderstandings now that sounds rather ambiguous and vague but believe it or not that is actually a much more pointed statement from a Chinese official in Africa than we've heard at any other time since this happened back in April 2020. Chinese officials resolutely said there was no discrimination against black and African residents in Guangzhou. This was a conspiracy of Western media trying to drive a wedge in between China and Africa. So the fact that Ambassador Zhou even acknowledged there were some misunderstandings is interesting, notable. I guess, Elihud, are, were you satisfied with the answer that he gave, given the fact that, in, in your view, this is still a very important issue? As you say, you know, the fact that acknowledged, and, you know, it, I would say, I would say uh, very few uh, diplomats will actually want to, to really get into such details because the, the deeper you dip, they, you know, it might get, you know, they, they might say something that they really didn't mean or didn't want to come out. So they are very cautious in such scenarios. So, well, I was not satisfied, but I think the fact that he acknowledged there was an issue, I think was was a fair answer, was a fair answer. But I think, of course, there is more that needed to be said because from the experiences I had and you know then there is the issue that some of the activity or you know some of the uh, actions that were actually subjected to Africans were not and I think they have uh, previously said is that this is not the policy of China and I think very many governments will say that so I think he was just being cautious of what he says but the fact that he acknowledged there was an issue and that it was addressed was a fair answer. 
So you mentioned early on that that there's a, there's been a lot of of negative coverage of of, of China in in the Kenyan press recently, um, and that I wouldn't say it is negative coverage of the press, but negative. What is covered really are the attacks against China and the debt. So I think it's not just because it's China that is being covered negatively. It's within the what is happening in the country. You know, and I think you appreciate it's it's around the elections time. Yes. Well, yeah, that that yeah, that make completely makes sense, and 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 that was also the direction I was heading in. The um, so what what role do you think China is going to be playing in in this year's elections? Do do you foresee kind of like these issues like the Standard Gauge Railway like becoming election issues as well? Already, the SGR is an election issue. Uh, the expressway is an election issue. The debt already, the opposition or the one of the coalitions called the Kenya Kwanzaa Alliance has actually recently went out and read the issues about the debt that you know the former president Moiki Baki left a debt at one point something trillion. Now it's heading to eight trillion, and a lot of it the politicians say is from China, and uh, they say those. This is because we are focusing on infrastructure projects because they have kickbacks. So already there is that narrative. And I think with the election uh, date nearing, it will escalate because um, one of the jubilee, jubilee uh, the ruling party of officials was accused, not formally, but accused of benefiting from you know what they call kickbacks. So increasingly, a lot which might be true, other a lot of it which will not be true, but already we can see the election. You know, these issues becoming, becoming, and it's really pretty much about the debt, about the project, and the value for money for Kenyans that the conversation is being, you know, centered on. Why do you think that Kenyan politicians and the media and people at large focus as much tension on the Chinese when the fact is that the Chinese owe, again, about 10% of the debt, which is significantly less than what Kenya has borrowed from eurobond holders and multilateral lenders like the, the World Bank and the IMF and others. Why do the Chinese get a disproportionate share of this attention, given the fact that they're smaller creditors than multilateral and bondholders, plus the fact that Kenya borrows 50% domestically? So I'm just I'm I'm always struggling to figure out why they get this attention and why it's such an issue given it it, re- it is a relatively small share of the overall mm. debt. Yeah, actually you're right because the World Bank loans as of now are more than all the bilateral loans uh, combined. That is at uh, I think Kenya shillings um 109 trillion. So and he spoke of a narrative, a narrative from uh, people he did not mention, but I would assume it's from the western uh, western countries where you know what the chinese are doing is seen in a different uh, angle on a different lens well from where i sit i think the reason is when moikibaki came to power in 2002 uh, through his his leadership up to 2012 there was a lot of shift towards china and once that happened, uh, there was what we called the look East policy. With that, I think there was a lot of those in, who, in which Kenya had, uh, you know, previously engaged a lot. And you remember the politics of of, of former President uh, Moi and the World Bank, and World Bank really not financing, uh, you know, the Kenyan budget. And there was these co- things we call the structural projects in which, you know, there was no a lot of, you know, there were a lot of conditions. So there was that shift towards China. Maybe there was a, a disfranchisement from that from certain quarters. And one 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 of the columnists uh, in our paper called Patrick Gadara had actually cited the, if we are speaking about the Chinese loans having unfavorable terms, it does not mean those from the West are any better. And I think the reason is, you know, there are narratives that have, you know, have been there, you know. Also, it goes back to the history of the country. You know, it's, it's you know, it's uh, it has been pro the West. So with that shift, I think there is a push maybe to discredit 
what China is doing uh, in Africa for the sake of others to benefit. Secondly, is there has been a lot of Chinese activities in the continent or in the country. So the fact that there has been that visibility of the Chinese, uh, you know, huge contracts in governments going to the Chinese, I think the fact that they are very active, then they are exposed to all this criticism because, you know, these projects are very visible. You not go anywhere in, a, in this country and not find a Chinese contract handling a project. So, and you know, there has been also the criticism from Kenyan contractors that they are losing business to the Chinese. So the fact that they are very visible and present also exposes them to such kind of criticism. Let me just ask you one quick follow-up question to that, because Chinese officials, anytime there's something negative in the discourse related to China, Kenya, China, Africa, they're almost, you can put money on it that they're going to blame the U.S. and blame the West. As you've pointed out, they say these are Western narratives. That's rather condescending to you, because what they're basically saying is that you are basically following what the West is is saying, and therefore you're not making up your own mind, and you're just some victim here in all of this. So let me ask you the question. You are a journalist at The Star, one of the leading newspapers in Kenya. You are talking about China-Africa issues. When you bring up these issues, are you following a Western narrative, or are you coming up with these ideas for these kinds of questions on your own? Uh, these are from my own. Uh, actually, I wouldn't, uh, you know, in through the interview, I didn't, actually, I can't see anywhere, I know, I framed my question uh, pegged on what is happening in the in the Western countries. Right. But are you following Western narratives? Like, are you as a journalist looking to what the New York Times, The Guardian and others are saying about the Chinese in Africa to shape your understanding of what China's doing in Kenya? Well, I read these publications, but I don't think they have influenced me much to because a lot of what you know we are covering are things we can see, you know, and these are documents we can we have access to some some of the documents is, for instance, when they visit and these contracts are signed or these deals are signed, I think it's by them being here. And the contracts that you are getting that, you know, we report, but I will not rule out, rule out, you know, the influence of Western media because it's very dominant compared to the Chinese media in, in the country. So as, as Eric mentioned at the top, you know, one of the biggest issues in the Kenya-China relationship is trade and particularly the, the b- very big trade imbalance between what's imported from China and what, what Kenya exports to China. Did like how did how did the how was the trade issue kind of handled in the interview? Um, and do you see kind of any are there kind of big plans coming up to try and kind of fix this massive trading balance? From what he speaks, you know, there there is a lot, and you know, first from the the diplomatic point of view is China will always put in its interest first in engaging with Kenya because, of course, these are the national interests. It's pushing its own national interest in Kenya. So whether it's getting market for its products, whether it's getting contracts for its companies, whether it's getting market for its, you know, you know, equipment, all these things. So, you know, to try, to try, you know, I wouldn't personally blame China for, you know, having a higher you know trade share in this regard because you know they have actually come in and you know tried and explored and taken advantage of what is missing here on the other end kenya has you know has realized uh, it needs to fix this trade trade gap and there have been uh, formations of partnerships with you know chinese businesses for instance there is one uh, if i recall it's called events plus africa that is seeking to get markets and market uh, uh, market for Chinese companies in Kenya. So uh, in in China, sorry. So I think for them, you know, I don't think they should take the blame for for these issues because you know for them it's them pushing their own interest. It's upon now the Kenyan government to seek uh, those opportunities through our mission in in China. So he was not very committed in in terms of you know what uh, Kenya is to get other than what, you know, you know, but he actually said China does not pursue a trade surplus with Kenya, you know, the trade market 
uh, the trade pattern is really determined by the market trends or market forces and that tells you, you know for them they are following what you know if it's a uh, willing buyer willing seller so i think that's what i got, i got from him and there's a lot of excitement now in the Kenya-China trade relationship over the prospect of Kenyan avocados finally being able to make it into the China market. This was a deal that was signed a couple of years ago, but there was a requirement that Kenyan avocados had to be flash frozen before they are shipped in order to prevent pests and other bugs from making it into the Chinese market. They have apparently come to some resolution now to open up this market. And trust me, as a longtime resident of China, I can tell you there is a huge demand for avocado now in the tier one cities. People love eating avocado. There's a a chain called Baker and Spice in Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Beijing. And they've got avocado toast. They've got guacamole. they got everything. And I can one day imagine tons of Kenyan avocados feeding lots of Chinese consumers in cities like Guangzhou, Shanghai, Beijing, and Tianjin. So that's very exciting. You mentioned at the top of the show the Nairobi Expressway. And speaking of other exciting developments, this is something that's absolutely incredible. Let me just bring everybody up to to speed on what it is. If you've not been following this, and if you haven't seen a picture of downtown Nairobi in the past six months, you're missing something. The skyline and the kind of landscape of Nairobi has been transformed by this 27-kilometer toll road. So it's basically four lanes, two down, two two back. It goes from Jomo Kenyatta International Airport right through the Central Business District. And then there's an eastern bypass ring road that's kind of surrounding the city. So as Elihud pointed out, you can't miss the Chinese. The impact that the Chinese are having in Nairobi is absolutely transformational. What's exciting about the expressway is the fact that this is a debt-free project. So this is the China Road and Bridge Corporation that is doing this on a public-private partnership. So they're fronting the money, about $600 million, and they're going to get it back through tolls. Eliud, this is about to launch now. We're talking weeks away that you're going to be able to take the, uh, the Nairobi Expressway. What's the feeling in Nairobi about this new project? Are people excited about it? Are they dreading it? What's the, what's the atmosphere around the launch of the Nairobi Expressway? Yeah, so there, there, there are both reactions. I mean, there are positive reactions and negative reactions because there is a perception that the expressway is, the, is meant for the, for the rich, the upper class, and the poor, the majority in Nairobi will not have a chance to, to use it. But then on the other end, then there is the excitement that you know it's a first, it's a it's a project that is changing uh, Nairobi. Secondly, Mombasa Road was you know if 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 you've been to Nairobi and you want to go to the airport, you know it was crazy. You, you needed to have at least three hours you you know for you to get to the airport on time. You don't want to miss your flight. So there has always been. The risk, uh, the risk that you miss a flight, and the fact that you know, Nairobians have been wasting. I think the estimates of billions of money lost in traffic. I think the expressway is coming to change that because, if I think it would take a few minutes to get to the airport. So there are both the reactions. I think, but you know, and already, already the politicians who are saying it was not value for money because they are comparing it with. Uh, the one in uh, in Uganda. So, I would say there is both excitement and criticism of the of the project. How do you foresee the the Kenya China relationship going forward after the election? Like what what you know, kind of in case some of the opposition parties come into power, what changes do you foresee in the relationship? Uh huh. Not much. Not much because uh, as it is now, the person who was criticizing the Chinese debt and all these uh, projects is now being, you know, endorsed by the president, and he has promised to continue with the infrastructure program. Uh, and Raila Odinga has been the infrastructure AU infrastructure envoy uh, for the last, I think, three years. So. I think if it's in terms of infrastructure, then we will continue. Uh, and you know, of course, the Chinese are reducing, you know, the the amount of loans they are giving uh, to Africa. I think at Fokak they agreed at 4.5 trillion uh, in Kenyan shillings. Uh, and well, I still feel there will be closer ties with the Chinese because. They've been in charge, or they've been, you know, for instance, the SGR is a pro, uh, project that will see them 
and remain in Kenya for some time. The expressway as well because it's a PPP project and a number of very many other projects. There are ongoing dams that are being built across the country. So I see them continuing that relationship because even the deputy president who is uh, campaigning from uh, an opposition point of view has been one of the people who have been you know, taking credit of the projects that Jubilee government did in the first term a lot of them being undertaken by the Chinese. So I, I really don't think uh, there will be a huge uh, shift of policy in terms of the, you know, the, the relationships with the Chinese. And also, in fact, I see there being more engagements, more diplomatic engagements, trade, and, 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 very, and you know, technology spheres with the Chinese. Eliud Kibi is a sub-editor and an international and diplomatic affairs writer at the Star newspaper, one of Kenya's leading national newspapers. And he was also fortunate enough to have the chance to interview Chinese ambassador to Kenya, Ambassador Zhou Pingjian. And his article and his interview we will put in the show notes. Eliud, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to tell us a little bit more about your experience and your perspectives on China-Kenya relations. I know you're quite active on Twitter. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? At Eliud Kibi. Eliud, K-I-B-I-I. Eliud Kibi. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for hosting me. I'm a, uh, I feel honored. Kobus, what a treat to have the chance to talk to Elihud. Again, to hear the perspective of a journalist on the ground and who was somebody who had a chance to speak with Ambassador Joe. And again, the fact that a journalist interviews an ambassador by itself, is it shouldn't be newsworthy, right? But it's a Chinese ambassador. And I, I can hear Director General Wu Peng, who was on our show, saying, what are you guys talking about? We're always accessible to the media. We'll talk to you anytime we want. Well, you and I both know that's not true. It is special and it is unique and rare when high-level Chinese officials make themselves available to reporters like Elihud with no preconditions, don't have to submit questions, we can talk about anything you want, and it's just so counterproductive of the Chinese to be so reluctant to engage African media because these kinds of conversations are exactly what we need more of. And, and the fact that Ambassador Joe wasn't always very forthcoming in his answers and he was evasive and he was outright lied at one point when he said there's no secrecy issue. You can say a lot of things about the, the contracts in, in Africa, specifically the SGR contract, but to say there's no secrecy issue is just disingenuous. Okay, let's just put that out there. But it is great that he's on the record for some of these things. And in a society like Kenya, which has a very vibrant and dynamic media, I think it's a strategic mistake on the part of the Chinese and the part of Ambassador Joe that he's not out there more often and that it really shouldn't be newsworthy of you and I and others to say, oh my God, there was an interview with the Chinese ambassador. So that to me is is, is the big takeaway. Yeah, you know, obviously it, it's, it takes a lot of legwork and a lot of setting up to get these interviews. Um, and obviously, you know, the ambassadors on their side also, it, 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 it takes, it opens them to risk, um, you know, because we know that the Chinese system is, you know, is, is stricter and that there, that there is fallout for being, you know, kind of for, for saying the wrong thing. So, so you know, kind of kudos to both sides for, for doing this. Um, and I agree with you, it, it would be much better if there's more of these conversations um, because, because it also, you know, it just kind of, you know, de like or it, it just is kind of makes the Chinese um, the, these different Chinese actors more familiar to African publics which and, and the fact that they are so unfamiliar for them is part of the problem um, so you know so so, so overall it, it does you know kind of uh, the, I, I'm, I'm very glad they did it um, and it made for interesting reading it is it is interesting to you know kind of to see the particular kind of ways that that the, the Chinese diplomats deal with these questions but just to give you a sense of the infrequency of these types of media engagements the last time that Ambassador Joe gave an interview of this kind, a sit-down one-on-one with a national media house in Kenya, was December 16th, 2020, okay? And that was with Agri Matambo from the Daily Nation. So there are big, long, giant intervals in between these interviews. And again, that's why we're talking about it today, and that's what makes it interesting. Also because 
So much, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is happening in the China-Kenya relationship, especially economically speaking. But also there's this massive infrastructure project that's about to unfold, which is the Nairobi Expressway, which, again, say what you want, but this is a transformational piece of infrastructure. I mean, there is no way. And there's a sense on Twitter and talking to Kenyans, again, people who support this because it's a very polarizing issue, that this expressway in some ways has transformed the city and there's a sense of pride that comes out of it because when you look at the pictures of Nairobi now, it feels more modern and more just advanced. It feels like it's developing and changing. And here in Vietnam, it's the same way. We're getting new bridges, we're getting new airports, we're getting new ports, and you get this sense of excitement that, wow, we're moving forward. And I think that's what infrastructure can do. And it's a feeling that is underappreciated in the global north. But when you see this beautiful snaking road going right through central Nairobi, it's exciting. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. At least for me, it's exciting. And from the people that I've been speaking to, it is very exciting. Now, you brought up something very interesting, and that is the presidential campaign that's underway. So China is factoring into a number of presidential campaigns across Africa. So we have been seeing hints of it potentially in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the fight over the copper cobalt mines. Just this week, there was an incident that potentially could be construed as political between Nigerian Transportation Minister Rotimi Amechi and CCECC, which is the big Chinese contractor there. And he got into a little fight with them, and he would never have done that a year ago. But when the money's drying up, and Amechi now is poised to be a candidate for the presidency next year, I think the general elections are next February, uh, politics do become a part of this. So, Kobus, what's, what's your assessment of the role that politics is playing in the elevation of the China discourse on things like debt and the lack of transparency in loans? You know, I, th- I think there's, there's two issues. One is the kind of long-term realities of these issues where, where you know, kind of trade debt and so on become these kind of structural parts of the relationship that also structure life in Africa. The other the other half of it is the is Africa's electoral cycle, you know, um, where where certain things that people just live with generally suddenly become issues when, when there's an, an election at stake. So, you know, we've seen opposition parties try to use connections to China as a way to to kind of hit incumbent parties. And I expect that will probably happen in the Kenyan case as well. But we then see whoever wins after the election then has to kind of settle down and start working with China again because there are so few other other partners. Um, So I kind of expect that in the Kenyan case as well. What, What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Kenya, I don't think we should see too much of a transition simply because uh, Deputy President Ruto and Raila Odinga, the two leading candidates in the race, are both really establishment figures. So they're not rebellious in any way. They're not like some of the fringe presidential candidates. One of them said, I don't know if you remember this, we included in the newsletter, it was fantastic. Kenya should start growing weed, sell the weed to pay off the debt, and then kick the Chinese out which to me was the most colorful response to the Chinese debt issue, okay? Uh, It got a lot of uh, coverage on Twitter for that. I don't think it's going to go anywhere in the body politic, but just linking weed to paying off Chinese debt, that was something that was new. But in terms of who's actually going to win the race, it's probably going to be either Ruto or Odinga, most likely. Who knows, of course, until the election. And both of those figures have been quite amicable with the Chinese over the years. Uh, Rilo Dinga, in fact, has a rather personal connection with the Chinese, and he's been very open and public about the story of his daughter, who had very serious brain issues and health issues, went to South Africa, then they flew her to uh, Peking University Hospital in Beijing. She was, you know, helped there, then she was flown to India, and apparently Indian doctors helped get her better. But he was very, very appreciative of what the Chinese did in flying her to Beijing. And at the time, this was like three or four years ago, I said, boy, if he ever becomes president, he is not going to be the one who's going to get tough with the Chinese, given the fact that he credited at the time the Chinese for saving his daughter's life. And to me, that was a boss move on the part of the Chinese. And that's one of the things that they do is they build these relationships with opposition figures and the dividends pay themselves off years down the road, years down the road. So if Odinga wins the race, 
part of it will be from the investment, or at least the relationship with the Chinese will be stabilized in because of the investment they made in that very expensive medical treatment and procedure that they did for Odinga's daughter, if Odinga wins. Now, Odinga, I think, has run four times now, so he has not been very successful in, in running for the presidency of Kenya. But I don't think there's going to be a very dramatic transition. And also, one other thing, the Chinese have been quite good in the political transitions. Remember Michael Sada back in Zambia early on in all of this, 10 years ago, and he was you know, the King Cobra, right? And he built his entire campaign on bashing the crap out of the Chinese. And then as soon as he got into office, the first country he went to, off on a plane to Beijing. Yeah. So whatever people say in the campaign doesn't always turn out to be how they govern. Yeah, yeah, you know, because because there's just certain realities and China is now one of those structural realities for Africa. Just very quickly, we have to touch on this before we go. I know you've been writing a lot about this every day uh, on the site and in the newsletter about the impact of the war in Ukraine and how so many African countries voted to abstain. Can you give us a few of your thoughts on that before we go? Because it is so fascinating. Things are changing so quickly. New rules are being written. Uh, in fact, there's some word now that we are entering a new geopolitical order, which I think is true as well. Uh, share a few of your thoughts before we go on what you've been writing about in terms of the African role in this crisis. Well, you know, it's, it's, it was very interesting. The majority of African countries voted for the UN resolution to, to censure Russia for, for its invasion of, of Ukraine. And this includes both Kenya and Nigeria. Um, but a large number, a large mi minority of African countries, about 25 of them, ended up either formally abstaining or simply not participating in the vote. So, so you know, basically saying that they're, they're, not, they're not in the room, um, which is a Form of, of abstaining, and part of that is, I think, is navigating, you know, kind of very real kind of conflicts on the one hand, on, on, on you know, between Western interests on the one hand and Chinese and Russian interests on the on the other, um, and I think this is particularly true for South Africa, who abstained, um, which I think, you know, one of the, I mean, there's many, you know, South Africa's foreign policy is a complicated, mixed situation, but um, you know, it's, uh, you know, one one key reason I think for abstaining was that that they are um, a member of the BRICS bloc. And interestingly, India also abstained. Um, so, you know, so, so on the one hand, they're kind of, they're navigating between these these great powers. Um, on the other hand, I think one one of the big issues is that, that many of these African countries, and I think this is also true for South Africa, actually, is th that, they, that they abstained not because they lack sympathy for the Ukrainian plight, but because they want to avoid the optics of voting for NATO. And NATO is, you know, is controversial in Africa, um, you know, because of the fallout of the of the Libyan invasion in 2011, which ended up being this massive, massive disaster, um, which I think is not really, really remembered in Western countries, except for the, the the fallout around the Benghazi hearings that that you know was partly took down Hillary Clinton, um, but the you know kind of in, in Africa it's it's still a massive issue because because a lot of a lot of that kind of fallout ended up spilling over into into neighboring countries and is still really in you know kind of involved like informing the the instability in the Sahel region um so you know so so kind of avoiding this kind of avoiding appearing to support NATO you know kind of as what played a role I think in some of these abstentions and it also played a role I think in China's abstention um and you know because because one knows that um you know that you know China abstaining is different from China supporting is, is different from 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 uh, you know kind of uh, how can I say like it you know kind of the China's abstaining is, is itself sends a kind of a message you know kind of to to Russia among others um, and. You know, and and I think part of that is to avoid the optics of being of being kind of like pulled into this kind of NATO orbit, which was also China's experience in in Libya. And I think China did feel blindsided by by how the Libyan situation played out, including having to to evacuate thousands and thousands of its own residents from from Libya. So you know, so 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 that 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 kind of was part of this issue. But one of the the kind of big things that's coming up now, I think, is that is that um. 
you know, the, the, the you know, kind of like you, you mentioned this this kind of emerging geopolitical order, and one of the big questions that are coming out of that is is if we're looking at these kind of huge chunk of, of, of the global population, if you if you take India, China, and and these kind of twenty five African countries, that's a that's a lot of people. What kind of universal global human rights vision? is emerging from from that group of people you know um like what is china india and these african countries what what kind of you know kind of ide- which ideas for kind of the global good are they are they pushing particularly if they are also us also differentiating themselves from a kind of a western centric kind of human rights vision i think that's still a really unanswered question it's, it's going to be a really crucial one for the future and that was the topic of one of your columns today in the newsletter and that's on the website and if this is a topic that you're interested you're going to want to follow what cobus is thinking about this i'll be honest with you we are hashing this out as we go uh, you know it's not crystal clear and well formed because things are changing so quickly but we're trying to look around the corner and that's really the exercise that we're doing here so if this is what you like you should definitely try out our newsletter and a subscription to the china africa project website chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe we'll give it to you free for 30 days see if you like it we've got half off discounts for students and teachers just seven bucks a month so it's not that expensive less than a starbucks in the U.S. at least. <laughs> I was shocked the other day when my friend told me that her Starbucks bill was like 30 bucks for lunch. And I was like, how do you spend that? But uh, our subscription, a lot cheaper than a Starbucks lunch, but and a lot more fulfilling, no doubt. Uh, but again, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And we've got this great team now. We've got Nesrin in Cairo. We've got Giro from the DRC. We've got Kobus in Johannesburg. We've got a China editor. This great team putting together this, this amazing content every day. And we'd love for you to be a part of this community. So if you have any questions, feel free to let me know. You can email me directly, eric at chinaafricaproject.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, we love getting into these discussions. And people are always surprised when I email them back, these massive diatribes. So if If you don't want to get into a discussion, do not email me. If you do, let's have a chat. I love it. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Uh, We're going to slowly start getting back up to two episodes a week now that our launches are are coming into uh, you know to fruition. We're also going to bring you a bonus episode in the next week or so with Giraud to talk about covering China, Africa in the Francophone space and our new French language website. We're so excited to introduce you to him. Many of you who have been following the show for some years will know that he's been a guest on our program several times, uh, talking about Congolese issues and Congolese mining in, in particular. So you have something to look forward to. We are so happy and proud that he is part of our team. And he's going to be launching his own newsletter Uh, starting in April. So you can sign up to receive that as well. Right now, by the way, if you speak French, the website is uh, fully open, no paywall. So enjoy the content and we'd love to hear any feedback that you have. So that'll do it for this week. We'll be back next week for Kobus van Staden. I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.